Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. We still get to say that. Happy New Year. I am... uh, I, I love, I'm like a New Year's guy. Like, I love New Year's Eve. I love New Year. Um, you know, I'm glad it's 2022. I, I heard it said that 2020, 2021 makes 2020 look like it was 2019. I don't know what that means, but if you think about it for a second, I think it's actually true. It's a tough year. But I'm excited for 2022, excited about what God is going to do right here in our community um, as we just grow together as a community of faith, practicing the way of Jesus together and walking toward him. So I'm just really uh, excited for this new year and glad that, uh, glad that you're here with us uh, this morning, whether that be here in person or, or online. So uh, we are going to be continuing our series today from 1 Corinthians. We were doing that back in the fall. and We took a small break around the holidays to do the Doing Christmas series uh, through the Advent season, which was great. And now we're going to be jumping back into 1 Corinthians. Now we're going to be in a passage today, just an FYI, a little heads up. We're going to be in a passage today in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that's dealing with some issues related to marriage and um, sexual and and physical intimacy. So I don't see too many young kids in the room, but uh, for parents... Um, some of the, the language from the scriptures and some of the things we're going to talk about are going to relate to those themes. Um, as a dad myself, you know, it's nothing, very, nothing graphic, but as a dad myself, I, I'd probably rate it like a PG 9 or 10. Um, so, uh, you know, just use your judgment there. Um, there. Kids Quest and Ignite is available, and there's some space out in the uh, lobby as well if you'd like to uh, take your children out there. So, um, about third century B.C., 3000 BC, quite some time ago, uh, there began this type of art form where folks would take different pieces of rock or different gems, different sizes, different shapes, and they would start to piece them together, one next to the other, different shapes, different sizes, different colors, and then they would step back and take a look at everything they had put together, and it would portray a larger image. You guys know what that's called, right? Mosaic, right? Some artists among us. So for what now, for 5,000 years or so, uh, mosaics have just grown as this form of art. So uh, in 2018, uh, an artist named Andrea Dezzo took a few jagged pieces of glass and of tile um, imperfect, misshapen, jagged, just like this that we're seeing here on this screen. And she slowly started to put those pieces together, one after another. And before you knew it, she had developed this, this, this beautiful portrait of life. And uh, we're New Yorkers. We have the privilege of being able to see this uh, in a lot of different places because this particular one that uh, Andrea Dezzo built is in our New York City subway system. This is the Lehman College station in the Bronx, and it's beautiful. And actually, the New York City subways are filled with mosaics. She has several of them throughout various stations, and uh, it's filled with these mosaics. And, you know, as we're back in 1 Corinthians today in chapter 7, 
we're going to be talking about marriage. And the reason why that I show you these mosaics is because we tend to see our marriages or marriage in general as sort of a life filled with these various small pieces. Some of them are jagged, some of them are smooth. Um, you know, there's the mortgage, and there's the kids, and there's making dinner, and there's getting into an argument with your spouse, and then there's living in that discomfort for a while. There's making it, there's reconciling, or maybe sometimes just like sitting on it and letting it think it's going to go away when it doesn't. There's all these different pieces of what make up marriage, and some of them are difficult, and some of them are good and beautiful. But all of these pieces together are painting a larger picture. Marriage is many pieces working together to reveal something beautiful to all of us. And, and to that end, I would say, if you're single today or if you're um, not married, uh, please don't check out because marriage is a portrait that paints a larger picture that is for all of us to see. Marriage is, in fact, a portrait of God's good world brought about through the gospel. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul, who also wrote 1 Corinthians, he refers to marriage as a mystery. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But those who are in a marriage, those who are actually married, get to experience it, something profoundly and supernaturally beautiful experienced within a marriage. And then those are who are around a marriage, so even married couples who are exposed and around other married couples, and singles among us who are exposed to other marriages around them. When you are in the presence of a Christian marriage of two new kinds of humans um, living in this type of relationship, it's not just another relationship. Uh, your marriage is not just like another part of your life. That the, the reason why... Paul talks about it in this context of the supernatural things that God is doing through his spirit is because a marriage supernaturally portrays something beautiful. Sherry and I are passionate uh, about the beauty and the goodness of marriage and how it has the power to shape everyone that it touches. And today's section of Paul's letter uh, in, to, the first, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 7 is life-giving because we sometimes see the Bible as a list of things not to do, right? So don't say this, don't go there, don't live like this. And what, what Paul is doing here as he talks about marriage is he is painting a picture of God's good intent as it relates to marriage. And he helps us see that all of these other commands, like don't do this, don't do the way we think that the Bible reads, that it's mostly a list of don'ts. What he's trying to help us understand here as sort of this underlying premise is that sin is not the invention of something bad, but it is the corruption of something good. That sin is not the invention of something bad, it is the corruption of something good. So there's like 600 some odd laws and, uh, in the Old Testament. Most famously what? The Ten Commandments, right? And within each of those Ten Commandments and within each of those 613 laws, we see the good world that God is desiring to bring about. So in a command not to kill or not to commit murder is God's high value for life. 
and within a command to uh, not bear false witness, not to lie, is God's high value for truthfulness. In a command not to commit adultery is God's high value for the family and for, for loyalty and the good thing that he desires to do through a marriage. And yet we corrupt so much of God's good intention for us when we misuse uh, what he has actually intended. So uh, I brought with me my favorite spoon, all right? Is it weird that I have a favorite spoon? Maybe, a little bit, all right? But I'll tell you why this is my favorite spoon. So this is like an old spoon that I've had since like, I don't know, maybe like, it's probably been like 20 years. It was like this cheapo set that we bought, and now we have like these nicer spoons, but I always go back to Old Faithful. I don't know why. I think it's like the way it's curved, like when I'm eating. For, if I use another spoon, like the food doesn't make it to my mouth. Things drip off or falling down. So I don't know why, but not this spoon. Old Faithful always gets it right. So I use it to eat cereal. It's perfect. I'll use it for yogurt, just right, ice cream, even soup. It's a little small, but it gets the job done. All right? But if someone asked me to take this spoon and to dig a ditch, that would be a bad idea. It would take me a very long time, wouldn't it? Or if, um, you know, sometimes you'll watch like a TV show or a movie and like somebody's on some deserted place and there's a doctor and they need surgery and somehow they take a spoon and they like perform surgery or something crazy like that. But that's not what it was intended for, was it? Um, you might even have some familiarity. Sadly, this great spoon that feeds me great cereal is, is used to do a lot of harm. Sometimes it's used as drug paraphernalia. And that's not what it was intended for. And understanding our marriage and understanding sexual and physical intimacy as it's described in this passage is like this spoon. Sex is like a spoon. There you go. There's your tagline for today. <laughs> That when it's rightly used in the way that it was intended, it is beautiful, it is powerful, it is supernatural. But when it is misused, it brings about great harm. I'm going to put this back in my pocket because I'm going to be really sad later if I don't have it when I eat my cereal. So, um, Paul here is addressing some questions that the Corinthians had written to him about. And... Uh, the Corinthians' framework for understanding good and evil in their faith was becoming problematic. So just like a quick review, um, let's take a look at the passage right before uh, 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So what Paul is doing is he's responding to a letter that the Corinthians wrote to him. They had some questions. So here he's, he's addressing, line by line, kind of like what they said. He said, you wrote to me, I have the right to do anything. So what the Corinthians were doing here is that they were taking a step towards this framework of thinking called Gnosticism. They were basically ripping apart the material and the immaterial. So there's the material, there's our flesh, there's the things we touch, taste, and see, and then there's the immaterial. There is the, the, the spiritual part of us. And they were just totally ripping those two things apart and saying that the material is evil and bad, and then the immaterial, the part inside of us, is good. So that's the part that we need to focus on. And we, we, we get that. We still tend to do that, don't we? We still talk about, oh, okay, well, you know, I need to work on my spiritual life. And I, there's a good sentiment there. But we still have this tendency to say, okay, my spiritual life is over here, and then my physical and my emotional and my intellectual life is all of here. But all of those things together is what make us human. 
all of those things collectively interwoven, intertwined, is what make us human. And apparently the Corinthians thought that by sort of disembodying their spirit from their, uh, from their flesh, um, that it was affording them freedom. They were saying, well, listen, if the body's just the body, then you can meet its any need any time. Right? So the stomach, if you're hungry, you eat food. If your body desires some sexuality, then you just go and, and you have sex. And it's just like whatever need needs to be met, you can just meet it because they just rip these two things apart. And Paul's trying to help them understand that that's not freedom. That's actually bondage. Because now they have no choice but to gratify their every need. Think about it. If, there's no, if my body and my spirit have nothing to do with one another, then every time I'm hungry, I have to eat. Every time I, uh, you know, am feeling like I want to have um, sexual relations, I have to gratify that need. And that's kind of what he's getting into here. And so the Corinthians are ripping apart the material and the immaterial. So Paul says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, uh, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? See what Paul's doing here? He's starting to bring these two things back together. And he's saying, your body and your spirit are interwoven as one. He uses words like God and the Lord and he relates it to the, the, the material parts of us, right? To our actual bodies. Paul is telling them that just as you seek to honor God with your spiritual life, so also honor God with your bodies as well. So Paul is deconstructing this thing that they, where they were disembodying themselves from what is going on inside. And he was saying that physical intimacy and marriage are not separate from one another, and that your body and what you do with your body is not separate from what it is that God is doing in your soul, in your heart, in your spirit, in your emotions, in your intellect. That all of these things are connected. And he really wants to lay this underlying foundation to make that clear. And that really is the foundation that takes us into um, this positive picture of what he paints of what a marriage is a portrait of. That a marriage we're going to see is a portrait of three things. It's a, at least as Paul describes it in this section. It is a portrait of many things. It is many, many pieces that make up this mosaic. But in this passage, he talks about these three things. He talks about marriage as a portrait of mutual submission, marriage as a portrait of oneness, and marriage as a portrait of transformation. So let's take a look at this together in chapter 7, verse 1. Look at what he says. A portrait of mutual submission. He says, now for the matters you wrote about, Again, he's addressing something that they wrote to him. So like, hey, Corinthians, this is what you said to me. You said, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. What he's addressing, real quick, is this is something we tend to do also. The pendulum had swung the completely the other way. So basically, the Corinthians had said, okay, well, you know what, Paul, when you were here with us, you spent a year and a half here with us, and you helped us plant churches and all that stuff, and you told us about the perils of handling uh, our sexuality loosely. And what they're, they swung the pendulum the other way and said, well, if that's the case, maybe we shouldn't have anything to do with this at all. And that's what he's addressing here. He says, you say it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. That's, that's not what he said. He said, since sexual immorality is occurring, so the misuse of sex, using the spoon for the wrong things, since that is what is happening, look at what he says. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman 
with her husband. Paul restates here what God intended for intimacy from the beginning. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The beauty and the goodness of the union between one man and one woman in a lifelong marriage covenant as the foundation. Paul is hearkening back to these passages from Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 where uh, the scriptures talk about two becoming one flesh or, or even the very, very first commandment in the entire Bible. Do you know what it is? It's Genesis 1:28. be fruitful and multiply. And Paul is hearkening back to the goodness and to the beauty of, of that original good world. But how so? Take a look at what he says next. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. So here's a passage, a portion here, that I think has been immensely misunderstood and misused in a way that is really as horrifying as it can be potentially abusive. So what is this not? What is he not talking about here? Well, I'll tell you one thing. He's not saying that marriage should somehow be used just to fulfill your physical need for sexual intimacy. Because if he were saying that, that doesn't make sense. He just got done telling us in chapter 6 that sexual intimacy is not just a physical thing. He just got done telling us that. So now all of a sudden he's saying, oh yeah, it's just a physical thing, but don't fulfill it out here. Just fulfill it in marriage and then just meet that need. Just like stomach for the food and food for the stomach. He's not saying that. He already just got done telling us that there's something bigger here, that there's a bigger picture going on. And instead, he's painting this bigger, beautiful, important picture, part of this mosaic of mutual submission between two people. Husband and wife should fulfill their marital duty to one another. That word duty, the word marital is kind of added on in there. The word in the Greek is just the word duty. And in every other context where it's used in the New Testament, it's not used in relation to a sexual situation. It's used more as to what it is that is owed to another person um, in all respects. Some translations actually even say, you know, fulfill your affection to the other. Because it's not just physical, but it is that as well. And it says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband, and the husband yields it to her wife. Hey, quick note here. This was groundbreaking stuff at the time. Women were being... Uh, abused and misused, so it was very normal for something like a woman doesn't have authority over her own body. But to say that a man doesn't have authority over his was groundbreaking stuff at the time. Paul is like super egalitarian, saying every single person matters. And what he's getting at here is that this is an act of willing, mutual submission where we lay down our rights for the good of another. And this concept of laying down our right for the good of another is at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the good news about Jesus, at the heart of God's good world. This was Jesus' example. He laid down his rights for the benefit of another. And now, every marriage that you are a part of, every marriage that you see around you, 
Every marriage that you are exposed to is a portrait of this good and beautiful thing where we have the opportunity now to lay down our rights for the good of another. As I said, this, was, this has, had, has been horribly, I think, misused um, over the years. Where um, it, I, I've heard it used where, um, first of all, it just takes half the sentence, doesn't even take the whole thing, and somehow uses it to uh, make a wife or a woman somehow responsible for their husband's purity, which you are not. I've seen it create abusive situations, spiritually abusive, sexually abusive situations. And that is not God's heart. And that is not the heart of this passage. What it is, is the opportunity for married couples in this supernatural union, in this beautiful mosaic that we are in, this together. And, and have a role to play for one another, for one another's uh, uh, protection for one another's enjoyment for one another's pleasure and, and we're given this privilege and this opportunity to lay down our rights for the other and when every person does that when two people in a marriage lay down their rights for the other that relationship is then marked by safety it's marked by love it's marked by compassion it's it's marked by honoring one another it's it's marked by protecting one another and serving one another. These are the characteristics of God's good world that is depicted in marriage. Take a look at what he says next. He says, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. The concession being to take that time, um, you know, without that intimacy. I, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. See, come together again after taking this time so that Satan, the opponent, will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And the lack of self-control that he's talking about here, like, again, he's not relegating human sexuality to just a physical thing. The lack of self-control here is our tendency, which we still have, to disembody our physical selves and the material from the immaterial. And that tendency, it, we think it takes us towards freedom, but in fact, it takes us towards bondage. And what he's getting at here is that this notion of self-control is actually real freedom. Where you own your body and your body doesn't own you. We're prone to seeing our sexual need as a mere physical need. But when a husband and a wife join with one another, it is mutual love and mutual submission to one another. So do you only experience this in marriage? Well, Paul starts to touch on, in this next verse, something we're going to address uh, in the next passage. I think Trevor's going to pick that up next week. But he starts to lay the groundwork for that. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And, and just a little side note, he says there that it is good to remain married, but the word, he doesn't say it is better to remain unmarried. He 
that it is good because what he's getting at and what he gets at a few verses down the line in verse 17, we'll see it next week, he says each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as God has called them. That wherever you are in your stage of life, that, what, that the stage that you come to God in, that, that is, it is in fact good. And that God uses you and God uses it in every stage. But marriage depicts this picture of mutual submission that resembles God's good world, and it's to be experienced by all. And honestly, everything within us resists that, resists yielding our will because we come from this mindset of scarcity. You know, Sherry and I have been married 20 years, almost. I find that even still, it is sometimes difficult difficult for me to come before her and be truly vulnerable and, and truly let her know what it is that that I need and I think part of the reason for that is I think I'm afraid that if I if I come before her and I I am that vulnerable before vulnerable before her I'm somehow giving up some of my value control acceptance she's going to see who I really am or see some some darker part of me that I've tried to hide. And the fear is that there is not enough love and not enough acceptance for me to be able to be open with her. Because I approach the relationship from a mindset of scarcity. And what this picture that is being painted here with this mutual submission is that we are invited now to come before one another the way that God created us to, naked and unashamed. What that means is nothing to hide from one another and nothing to hide from God. Because we're not coming from a place of scarcity. We're coming from a place of abundance. Where there is an abundance of love and an abundance of acceptance and an abundance of compassion and abundance of generosity for us to experience from one another. And when you are in your marriage relationship or you are looking at someone else's marriage relationship you are seeing a portrait of that abundance it is the beauty of a christian marriage and i know our marriages aren't perfect but god is in the process of changing us he is in the process of bringing about supernatural oneness and supernatural transformation the next two things we're going to take a look at take a look at verse 10 to the married i give this command not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Marriage is a portrait of this supernatural oneness. Not sameness, supernatural oneness. Two people who are different from one another, and they maintain all that makes them different and unique from one another, and yet they become one. And this is not a concept that, that we had to come up with, because the eternal God himself is three in one. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not the same, but they are one. They are unique and distinct persons, and yet they are supernaturally one. And when we go and observe one another's marriages and we lean in towards what it is that he's describing here, this heart towards togetherness, this heart towards oneness, we lean in towards a fuller understanding of what it means to, in fact, be one and reflect 
the, the God in whose image we were created. Paul places high value on this togetherness that brings about oneness. This call on the husband not to divorce is, is a call, especially in the time period, was a call towards protection. And, and this call on this on wife to stay was this call on the wife towards long-suffering, and it was a call on the wife towards generosity and compassion. That even in less than ideal circumstances, if everyone is willing, that they are implored to stay. That said, there are circumstances where it is appropriate or even right to separate. And if you are in that situation, know that God loves you. God cares deeply for you. But you can also attest to the fact that that situation was not easy. I'm, I'm, I'm an attorney. I, I see ads sometimes from, from lawyers that say, you know, easy divorce, $450. Divorce is a lot of things, but it is not easy. And the reason for that is because we are ripping apart that which was never intended to be ripped apart. <clears throat> so he says here, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. And just a little side note, you're going to see this a couple times in this chapter where he says, I, not the Lord, or the Lord, not I. Um, all of the scriptures are, are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, so it's not like Paul like, took off his Holy Spirit hat and he was like, now I'm going to tell you what I think, and then he's going to put the hat back on. That's not what's happening. What he's getting at is there are some things that he's saying that are, were specifically taught and stated either in the Torah in the Old Testament or by Jesus himself. And then there are some things where he's extrapolating concepts that were taught by Jesus himself or by the Torah. And he's just making that clarification like Jesus didn't actually say this, but I'm extrapolating something that he did say. So uh, to the rest I say this, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her she must not divorce him it's this call this leaning in towards togetherness to choose togetherness that submission and togetherness are what cultivate this oneness that he's getting at. it's one thought he's talking about mutual submission and then he goes on this theme towards talking about togetherness because it's one thing that that mutual submission to one another and this coming together and choosing one another and choosing togetherness brings about that supernatural oneness two people who are different becoming one and there's something supernatural when we do take that posture of willingness to come together. And many families, and the longer you've been married, the easier it is to fall into this, where um, just one thing kind of leads to another, and everyone gets busy, and, um, you know, the husband has A, B, and C on his schedule, and the wife has D, E, and F, and then it just keeps getting more full and more full, and then before you know it, there's like two long schedules of different things, and they're completely separate from one another, and then you catch each other at 10.30 at night when you go to bed for five quick minutes of you know, how was your day as your head hits the pillow and that's the end of it. And, and before you know it, a day becomes a week, becomes a month, becomes a year, and it just becomes your existence. And Paul is, is calling us away from that. We're missing out on the, on the fullness and the beauty and the goodness of what marriage is and this portrait that it portrays to the people who are in it, this picture of God's good world, and the people who get to be exposed to your marriages, a picture of God's good world. It's this call for couples to choose togetherness, to choose oneness. And when we do that, it brings about this 
portrait of transformation. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Marriage depicts the transformative power of the gospel. You know, in... Um, in, in the Old Testament times, and even in, in the New Testament times, really in biblical times, and in, in Jewish culture, there were so many things that could make you ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And then there were illnesses and other physical situations that made you unclean. And in, in Jewish biblical contexts, when a person would touch something that was unclean, their uncleanliness would get onto you. That's the reason why they would cast lepers out of town um, in, in the Old Testament. Um, any type of illness or bleeding that you had, you would be cast out of town. Why? Because of that uncleanliness. If you are in my presence and I'm near you and I touch you, then your uncleanliness gets on me. But when Jesus came, he reversed that script. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came and he did something that no one else could ever do. Rather than making sacrifices to atone and make that cleanliness and sacrificing animals, he sacrifices himself so that everything that Jesus touches, instead of the uncleanliness getting on him, his goodness and his purity and his holiness gets onto that thing. And here we are, church. Here we are as followers of Jesus, bearers of the presence of Jesus everywhere we go. And here we are where everything that we touch as a community, as followers of Jesus, rather than that uncleanliness getting on us, our holiness, that is God's holiness in us, gets onto that thing. That's what actually he's talking about here. That that sanctifying work happens within a marriage. Isn't that amazing? That, that, that a husband and a wife who are following Jesus, that as they lean in, as they touch each other, as they grow in relationship, that, that the holiness of God that is in me gets transferred onto the other person. The holiness of that person gets transferred onto me. That we're not taking each other down, we're lifting each other up. That's what he's getting at here. And that's why he's encouraging us to stay. That, that, that the, the marriage is a portrait of transformation. And this is what happens in marriage. We sanctify one another as we bear Jesus's holiness to the other. So that happens within a marriage. It happens for everyone that is exposed to a marriage. So when you invite people into your home, and I know, you know, no one, our marriages are not perfect. Our homes are not perfect. But the grace that we seek to show one another in a marriage resembles Jesus' grace. And when someone comes into our home and is exposed to a married couple seeking and desiring imperfectly to extend grace to one another, that that is something that permeates the space around them and that, in fact, makes its way into the hearts and minds of the people that are exposed to it. You know, when, when, when you invite people into your home and, and our, our kids are not perfect and they don't behave perfectly, but the, the tenderness that we will choose to show our kids resembles the tenderness of Jesus himself. And when we show our kids that tenderness, imperfectly, I know, but when we show our kids into that tenderness, it permeates the space around us and it, and it, and it impacts the people that see it. And when you fight and when you disagree with one another and nobody sees it except you and your spouse 
and, and maybe your kids and a few other people that can sense that tension. You ever been around a couple that they're obviously in a fight and you know it? That's awkward, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but you know it, okay? But when you're, even when you're in that space, that space of difficulty, that space of, of tension, when we choose as uncomfortable as it is when we choose to take a step toward one another instead of another step away, when we take a step toward one another, toward grace, toward extending forgiveness, it resembles the grace and the forgiveness that are available to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it permeates the space around you. This passage is not just for married people. Because even if you're not married and you're near a married couple, you have the opportunity to see and experience this just the same. And that's what Paul's getting at. This is supernatural power, friends. Supernatural marriage. Supernatural union. Our marriages are a portrait of mutual submission. They're a portrait of oneness. They're a portrait of transformation. And all this time, you thought your marriage was just like another thing, right? She's like, yeah, it's just like another relationship. It's not. <laughs> it is so much more beautiful and profound than that. We talked about the beginning, how in Ephesians 5, Paul talks about, uh, describes marriage as this mystery. Tim Keller said it so well. He says, this is the secret, the mystery that he's referring to, that the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another, that when God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. It gives you both the power and the pattern for your marriage. So the invitation before us in the midst of this, there's all this beautiful stuff that God wants to do in our marriages for our benefit, for the good of the other, for the good of everybody that touches it. All these things that God wants to do. And the invitation before us is, are we willing, maybe not even to trust our spouse or trust the people around us, but to trust God enough to surrender, to open up our hands and to submit to one another? Are, are, are we willing to um, surrender our scarcity mindset that says, if I open up and create space for you, there's not going to be enough for me. And when we surrender that scarcity mindset and replace it with the truth, which is that in the good news of Jesus Christ, there is an abundance of love, an abundance of acceptance, an abundance of compassion and generosity that is available to you. And we have the opportunity to enjoy it and experience it from our spouse and from everybody around us as a community. And we have an opportunity to, to spread that outward to everybody that comes into contact with us. But would we be willing to surrender that scarcity mindset? and replace it with the truth of the abundance that's available to us? Would we surrender our guardedness and allow ourselves to be shaped and transformed by another person? That in our togetherness, in leaning in towards what it is that, um, that, that our spouses um, love, love to do, love to be, would we lean in and be willing to be shaped by that, release our, our, our desire to control our own space and open our hands and be willing to be shaped by another? It all starts with a, a posture, a willingness to surrender ourselves before God and say, God, I know you are the one who is not, is not pouring yourself out for me from a, from a place of scarcity, but from a place of abundance. And we can lean in and our marriages become richer and our community becomes um, more powerful and more whole and more healthy as we lean into that together. Amen.
If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.